Good morning. How are we doing? You guys good? Yeah. It's, it's good to be in his house this morning. And uh, man, what a beautiful day. We cracked the windows just so you wouldn't have to feel like you're missing it out there. I know we were supposed to get rain for several days, but you can't beat this. You can't beat this. I hope you enjoyed your day yesterday. It was, it was beautiful out there. It is March Madness, which means spring. We got some March Madness people in here. Yeah? You, you watching your basketball? Uh, many of you know, and, and if you're newer around here, this might just mess it all up for you, that I am a Florida Gator fan. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, my Gators were playing yesterday, and uh, un- not unfortunately, that's not the right way to put it, my, my four-year-old had his very first t-ball game right at tip-off time at Florida in the Elite Eight, where they got knocked out last year. So uh, my older son and I, we, we t-voted, we recorded it, we we purposely i avoided all phone calls and texts just to make sure that none of my buddies were sending me updates on the game uh and uh we got home we had recorded it and we were good to go we we got home and uh i said grady let's 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 watch the game ready to watch the game we hadn't heard anything about it and um what i didn't realize is that as soon as we turned the tv on the game was not quite over and because it was recording it comes right on the buzzer goes off we missed the last shot Gators lose. <laughs> and I didn't, I was just dumbfounded. Kimberly came in the room and I'm just sitting on the couch. And uh, I don't know what, what upset me, bothered me more, the fact that we lost or the fact that here we were ready to watch the game and it was ruined. It was, it was over. It was done. And Grady and I both were just like, well, we lost. There's no need to watch that game. <laughs> So the next game comes on, and um, I start watching it, I record it, Syracuse, Ohio State, not big fans of either one, but it's March Madness, missed the Gator game, I'm going to watch this one, Uh, record the game, because um, I had to come to the church, and and so I'm back and forth watching a little bit, and then last night I had to come to the church and do a couple things, it was getting late, recorded it, I thought when I get home... Uh, I'm, I'm a night owl, by the way. Don't call me at like 7 a.m., but about 2 a.m., it's fine. Uh, so I was going to stay up, watch the game. And uh, so I get home from the church at about 1230 last night, and um, I'm watching the rest of the Ohio State-Syracuse game. And it gets down, about this time, it's probably 1.30 in the morning. It gets down to one minute and one second. It's a two-point game. It keeps going back and forth, back and forth. It's a great game, and so I'm, I'm juiced, right? It's 1.30, I'm staying up for this game, and it goes off. The recording just stops. You know, don't you, Gary? Yeah, because he had to go to bed last night, and so he didn't get to watch even the recording, but you were watching it this morning, weren't you? And it went off. Thank you, because I didn't know. I, I was going to ask who ended up winning, Ohio State one, I think what happened was mom flipped it off while I was up here at the church for like 19 kids and counting or something like that. Is that what it was? Is that what it was? 19 kids and counting? And I missed at 1.30 in the morning, the last one minute and one second of the game. That's how my day went yesterday, but it was a beautiful day. This has no spiritual application at all. If you're, if you're wondering where I'm going with this, none at all. I just had to say that. I had to vent my spleen on that just a little bit. Thanks. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, let's, let's get back to the word here. Ephesians chapter two, 
Last week, we, uh, we went through a message that we entitled Old Family Photos. And if you missed it, well, you just missed it because I got some of your old family photos. And the thing about old family photos is we don't really like to look back at them because some of them are embarrassing. Some of them we would rather not remember or even us. Haircuts, clothes, sweater vests, tight-rolled pants, whatever it is that you had going on, you would just assume forget it until that trend comes back around because that often happens, right? I don't think the mullet's coming back, though. I don't think the mullet's coming back. Or the perm. Or the perm, Ricky. I don't think that's coming back. If you missed those pictures, maybe we can post them on the Internet or something like that. But we had some good, some good pictures. And the point of it was, in all good fun, that we need a reminder very often as Christians of where God has brought us from. A healthy reminder of, of the, the wretchedness that God has plucked us from in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't want to live in the mire of that. We don't want to be bogged down. We don't want to let Satan weigh us down with those things as if they're still true about us. But it's good to remember that those things once were true about us. Amen. They give us a healthy perspective on the here and now. I gave you five things that that reminder does for us. And if you missed last week, you can listen to it online. But here they are because it'll segue us into this week. Number one, it brings clarity to the gospel. If you get you wrong... In this equation of salvation, what we call anthropology, the doctrine of man, if you get the doctrine of man wrong, then it skews everything else. It messes up harmatiology. That's a $10 word for doctrine of sin. It messes up soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. It messes up Christology. You don't get Christ right if you get you wrong. Uh, you get theology proper, the doctrine of God himself, wrong. You can't say the things that Paul has said in Ephesians chapter 1 and in Romans and Colossians and in many other places. You can't say those things if your part in this thing is not exactly what he has said. And namely, he said, do you remember? We're dead. We were dead. That's the state of you and I. Now, here is the Greek depth of that word. Dead means dead. That's it. The story of you, right? You want to correct doctrine of you and me. By the way, I'm, I'm putting myself in there. You, plural, all of us. The right doctrine of us is that we weren't just sick. We were dead. Unable to revive ourselves. No dead man can bring themselves back to life. It makes no sense. If you're sick, maybe you can, maybe you can do something to heal yourself. That's not the story of humanity. We're not just sick And God needs to bring healing. We're dead as a doornail. We need need resurrection. And that's, that's what Paul reminds us of. We were dead. He makes absolutely clear that we remember. We remember exactly what God has brought us from. It brings clarity to the gospel. It gives passion to our worship. I I believe that you can't worship in spirit and in truth, especially with humility. You cannot worship without understanding who you were when God saved you. Number three, it causes humility towards each other. We're all on the same level playing field. We have to treat each other differently when, when we're all here, not here and here, right? I mean, you deserved grace no more than anyone else did. We were all in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. And so we're not JV and varsity Christianity around here. There is no seating chart for those who are a little better than the others. You get to sit over here. You get to sit in the front. And there's none of that. We all come to the foot of the cross on equal ground, sinners. And so there's no jockeying for, uh, for position in the church. Number four, it creates patient with, patience with the lost. 
We can't look at our lost friends and neighbors and say, why don't they just get it already? I mean, I wised up eventually, right? No, you didn't wise up. God was gracious to your heart and to your mind. He pulled the curtain back for you. He gave you the seed of faith that you needed. So it gives patience to the lost. It also drives us to prayer for the lost. When you know that you need God to bring your family and friends to the knowledge of grace, it drives you to your knees. I mean, I'm not a slick enough salesman to talk someone into it because I I can't do the work in the dark of their heart. I can't do the work in the depths. We need God. And so we we don't get frustrated with the lost. We're patient with them. And we run to God. We run to God and say, God, do what only you can do in the heart of this man, this woman, our children, our spouse, our parent. We need God. And that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We ended in, cha- in chapter 2, verse 3, among them too. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I didn't point this out last week. In verse 1, he says, and you, and then in verse 3, he says, and we. He's making a subtle differentiation between Jews and Gentiles right here. He's writing this letter to Gentiles in Ephesus. And so when he starts out chapter 2, and he says, and you were dead. And then he comes along in verse 3, and he says, and we too also. He's then including the Jews. Two types of people in the world, right? Remember this? Jews and Gentiles. You fit into one of those categories. If you're not Jewish by birth, you are a Gentile. And there's a whole bunch of different kinds of us over here, but we're Gentiles. And so Gentiles at Ephesus and down through the ages to us, you were all dead in trespasses and sin. That covers all of us. And then he looks back at those who were born, chosen race of God, the Jewish people. We too Because he knows that we, and we could include ourselves in this now, who find ourselves maybe religious, we tend to put ourselves in a different category. But Paul didn't let the Jews think that way. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Then he gets down to the end of verse 3 and he says, by nature, literally it's by birth we were children of wrath. You know what that says to the Jew? Who held to their birth as their right to be children of God. And they were. It says to them that even in our birth, as the chosen race of God, we too need the grace of our God. You see Paul putting everyone on the same level playing field? Jew or Gentile, we're all dead. We're all lost. We're all in desperate need. Then we come to verse 4. And I hinted to you that this is where we were going last week. Here's where we start this week. Great Two words of transition here in verse 4. But God. And if you want a summary of the gospel in Paul's mind, there's where it begins. Here's all this stuff about you. Let's look back and remember who we were. Dead men walking outside of Christ, outside of mercy and grace. But God. But God. And so here in those two words, you have the intervention of the Father through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad that God intervenes on our behalf, church? I mean, that's worth coming and getting together on a Sunday morning, singing, listening to the Word, to hear the story that while we were yet sinners, helpless, wretched, 
lost, dying, dead. God had, God had something up his sleeve, so to speak. God had an eternal plan. Here's what he did. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. Now I want to do something here. I'm going to jump around over these next few verses. Paul cannot restrain himself, so I'm going to restrain him for us. Okay? But God, and then he's going to say this about God because he can't not say it. And then he's got to say this about God because he can't not say this. And he's got to throw this about the grace and the mercy in there. But before he ever gets to what God has actually done, he starts saying all this extra stuff because he just can't restrain himself. So I'm going to skip all that extra stuff and I'm going to go right to what God has done. Number one, here's what God has done. Even though we were dead, God, and you got to go all the way to verse five and skip that first phrase in verse five, made us alive together with Christ. That's number one what he has done. Despite your deadness, your lostness, your wretchedness, just like the rest of us, God intervened. And what did he do? Number one, he made us alive. He made us alive. Number two, you got to skip a little more, end up in verse six. The second activity that God has done on our behalf, he raised us up with him. That would be Jesus again. He made us alive, number one, and then he raised us up with Christ. And then the third thing that he does at the end of that verse, he has seated us with him, the father in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three things. All right. You want to jot these down. What are the activities? What are the, what are the actions that God pulled off when he intervened on your half? But God he did this. Number one, he made us alive. Number two, he raised us up. Number three, he seated us with him at his right hand in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know what God has done for you? In short, he's done for you what he did in Christ. Who did God the Father make alive again? Jesus. Who did God the Father raise up? Hunter, who did he raise up? Us. Us. Just like he did Jesus. Are you seeing the parallel here? Who did God seat at his right hand? First, Jesus. So the things that are taught us about Jesus, do you see Paul's now applying them to us? Here's who you were. But God did something on your behalf. Three things. He did the exact same three things that he did for Jesus. He made you alive. Resurrection. He raised you up, ascension, and he seated you at the Father. You get to sit at the right hand of the Father. All of those things are done. How? How are they done? How does he make us alive, raise us up, seat us with him in heaven? How does he do it? Each time they get a qualifier with Christ, with Christ, in Christ Jesus. Do any of those things have anything in them that point back to you? No. Not a one. You were dead, but God, he does it. He does the raising. He does the ascending. He does the seating. It all happens parallel in Christ, in Christ, with Christ. That's how you get it. That's how I get it. Great news. It has nothing to do with your activity. It's just been his activity all the way up to this point. 
In every facet, God is the one who does the raising, the resurrecting, and the seating next to him. Now, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Uh, I'm going to give you three reasons, four reasons. I'm not going to give them to you. Paul's going to give them to you here. And we got to jump back into the verses here. But just think about this for a moment. Why did he do it? Did he do it because, just ponder this, did he do it because you deserved it? Did he do it because you or I had earned it? The heart of God, listen to me close now because this may sound a little odd to you. The heart of God was not moved by you. The heart of God was moved by the heart of God. And there is a difference. Uh, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that in, even in our Christianity, even maybe sometimes in the songs we sing, maybe even sometimes when we're, we're preaching, maybe even sometimes when we're praying or we're thinking or we're sharing, we, we convey, maybe not even intentionally, maybe it's, maybe it just comes up subconsciously somehow. We begin to convey the idea that God loved us because somehow you or I were lovable. And that's just simply not the testimony of Scripture. God loved us because of His great love. His heart was moved towards us because of His heart. Uh, I can't say it better than... uh, One other pastor commentator did, so I'm going to read you this. Hold on. This is what magnifies the love of God in Christ. It's that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. It was as helpless, quote, ungodly people, Romans 5. Not treasures that God saw us. The only thing we stirred in God's heart, listen now, was wrath. The only thing we could have moved or induced or inclined God to do was to judge us eternally. The fact that he gave his son in love was not because of anything in us that he regarded as worthy of his affection, but solely because of his great and unfathomable determination to love those who were the moral antithesis of himself and enemies of everything that he regards as holy and true and right. If what moved God's heart to send Jesus to die for us was anything in us, then what becomes of grace? The cross is an expression of grace because those for whom Christ died merited only wrath and hell. If those for whom he died were contemplated as treasures from whom God valued, do we not diminish the nature of grace itself? Do we not to that degree then merit his atoning sacrifice? If God saw something in us that stirred him to send Jesus for us, the gift of his son ceases to be grace and becomes a matter of his indebtedness towards us at some level or another. Does God love us? Absolutely. Undeniably. Is it because of our loveliness? our lovableness, that he saw something in us that moved him to love us, like something maybe that we don't even see ourselves, but he saw deeper and so he wants to bring that out of us. No, we were dead, Paul says. There was no hope in us. God didn't look down and say, I see an ounce of hope in that guy. Let's move that in him. Now that sounds, that sounds kind of nice. 
But that's not the testimony of Scripture. We have to be absolutely clear. Because if we're not, if we're not, then grace gets really muddy. Grace ceases really to be grace. Mercy ceases really to be mercy. Because if God looks down and he says there's something lovable about this guy, then, then, then we merit. We merit his atoning sacrifice in some way or another. Uh, I think we, we walk on that line sometimes and we fall on the wrong side sometimes. Maybe in our prayers, in our dialogue, in our teaching. Listen, here's the hard truth, but it's the great truth. Uh, the sermon title for this week I gave, it's the greatest bad news you'll ever hear. Because it seems to be bad news, but it's great news. There's nothing in you that stirred God's heart to send his son for you. The heart of God stirred the heart of God. Completely, completely apart from you and I. God's love is based wholly and completely in him and who he is. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. Think of someone you love. Anyone. Get that name in your head. Think of anyone that you love. You got that name? All right. Now think of a second person you love. Get two names in your head. Two people that you love. Go ahead and grab a third name. Three names in your head. Three people that you love. Now here's the, here's the question. Do those people love you? Probably. If you're thinking about all those names... All of those people probably love you. We don't have the tendency to love people who don't like us. We tend to love people who will love us back. At the very least, they like us, right? I mean, maybe you're extending some, some level of grace and that you'll love them, but they're not people who hate you. That's the story of our love. That's the story of tainted human love. It's based on the one we love. We love someone else because there's something in them worthy of us giving our love to them. You know what makes God far and above us is that he loves us. He loves us when there's nothing lovable in us. Now, who gets that credit? Who gets that glory for that kind of love? God gets that credit. God gets that glory. That's what Paul means in chapter 1 when he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times. Three times. And he's going to say it again, chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his, what's the word? Grace in the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him in heaven. How did he do it? He did it in Christ, with Christ, in Christ. Why did he do it? Here are the reasons that Paul gives. You go back to verse 4, there at the beginning. He did it because God himself is rich in mercy. None of the, none of the causes for God intervening, for God making us alive, raising us up, and seating us, none of those, none of those point back to you and I. They all happened in Christ with Christ. And if you want to know why, he tells us, number one, it's because God himself just so happens to be rich, abounding, overflowing in his mercy. Simply another way of saying that God has no duty to save us. He's not obligated to save us. 
He is not, he's not drawn by our deep down somewhere innate goodness or lovableness. He's rich in mercy. Mercy infers that we deserve less, doesn't it? Mercy infers that you deserve the consequences of your sin. But God has mercy towards you. He doesn't give you what you actually deserve. What do we deserve? The debt of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. For him to leave us as dead men, that's what we deserve. Mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'll give you according to my love. God is rich in mercy. Number two, it was because of his great love with which he loved us. Verse four, the second half. It's great because the character of its objects. What does that mean? God, God's love could be called great because we understand who we are. When we know who we are, dead men, sinners, trespassers, it amplifies the love of our God. You see that? God's love can be called great because we are so wretched. Number three, why did he do it? It was in spite of the fact that we were dead in our transgressions. Verse five, even even when we were dead in our transgressions, he says. Even when we were dead. Now, let me read you back this because I'm jumping around here. But just listen to how Paul can't control himself and just throw some of these phrases in there. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, he just, he just keeps throwing in things that point us back to God, that point us back to God. It's because God is rich in mercy. It's because his great love with which he loved us. It was in spite of the fact that we were dead in our transgressions. Number four reason why he did it, it was by grace that we have been saved. This is where he's going in this, in this whole passage. This is where he started in chapter one. This is where he's going to end up in chapter 2 and in 3. He will pick this back up in verses 8, 9, and 10 here down in chapter 2. And he'll unpack it even more. He keeps moving in the direction that the why is because of his grace and his grace alone. Why would he do this for us? Why would he intervene? Why do we have but God after we find out that we're dead men walking? Why? Paul is pressing to the point. It's because of his grace. It's because of his grace. Did you notice that in verse 4, as he's getting into what God has done, rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with him in Christ, he has to throw there, and you have it in, in kind of parentheses there, by grace you've been saved. And then he comes back along, for by grace you've been saved. It's grace. It's grace. All right. Eternally, why would he do it? Eternally, why would he do it? Because we get in verse 7 some information here that I think is worth noting. He does this. He raises us, makes us alive, seats us in Christ next to him in heaven. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come. Watch this now. This is, this is part, part insight into the eternal purposes of God. So that in the ages to come. The ages to come are, are a way of saying from here on out. For eternity future, no matter what age comes, 
No matter what season comes, no matter, matter where we are in eternity future, all right? Here is what he's doing. In the ages to come, now he'll be able to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let me put it another way. God, here's what he's done, being rich in mercy, great in love towards us, even though we were who we were, made us alive, raised us up, seated us with him. Why has he done it? He's done it because he's kind. And he has expressed in Jesus Christ his kindness towards us so that we might display magnify the grace that is inherent in the very character, in the very person of the Father. In all of eternity, God will display His glory. How does He do that? He does it by taking dead men. And for no reason because of you and I, He extends grace to us. And it's maybe, maybe you think about it this way. I don't know that this completely uh, puts God in the right light. But we become in heaven one day, in eternity, we become uh, walking around living trophies of the grace and the glory of God. And so when you go into someone's house and they've got trophies or plaques you know, up on their wall, they don't really have to say anything to you about their accomplishments. You see their diplomas. You see their awards. You see their trophies. That says something about that person, Right? I imagine that when we get into heaven, we're going to be looking around and we're going to be saying, I know that guy. (laughs) And we're going to be thinking, that guy, they knew me. And you know what I think part of what's going to happen is, is, is we're going to be blown away looking at each other, thinking about how gracious our God is. So that in the ages to come, forever and ever. The kindness of God towards us in Christ Jesus will display the surpassing riches, the richness, the abounding grace that God has towards you and I. The bad news is it didn't come from anything you've done. But that's great news. That's great news. Let me give you a couple reasons why that's great news. Number one, because now you can rest. You can rest because you don't have to muster up anything. Excuse me. It's good news because you can admit your sin. You can admit your sin. It's good news because you can, in all honesty, agree with God. We call that confession. That you are who he says you are. It's good news because it's the truth about you. And it makes the most sense in our spirit. We would like to believe that there's something else true about ourselves. But when we come to grips that we were dead men walking, sinners without hope, in need of God's grace and mercy, not in need of God helping us, not in need of God throwing us a life preserver so we could swim over to it and and save ourselves in this cooperative act with God. Now, what makes sense to our heart What is the truth about us is that we were dead. Um, Verse 12, uh, verse um, 10. Look at what he says here. We are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What's the goal of this? It's that we don't walk in the ways that we walked in verses 1 and 2. You see where he started? When we were dead men, we walked according to our sin, according to our, our evil father. As resurrected, raised, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, men and women, we walk now. We walk according to his plan for us, that we walk in righteousness. Verse 8, 9, and 10, it really, he, he climaxes here with, with grace. Everything that he said here, he ends up with these verses. Look at this, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. You see how he just summarizes everything here? It's the gift of God. Not as a result of your works, your doing, your performing, so that none of us may boast. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship could also be translated his achievement. Isn't that good? We're his achievement. Created. It's the picture of being now reborn, resurrected. Dead men, rebirthed. Created once again, not on our own, but in Christ Jesus. And we have work yet to do. Work that God has prepared beforehand. Um, there's a couple things that, that passages like this do for us. Similar to uh, maybe you're familiar with the AA program. First step in Alcoholics Anonymous, every time you go to a meeting, is you stand up and you say, Hi, my name is such and such, and I'm an alcoholic. And they have you do that over and over and over again because the very thing that got you there was the realization that you needed to admit who you really were. And what keeps men and women from getting to that point is this idea that there's something still in them that can beat this thing. There's something still in them inherently that can, that can be good enough to beat their addiction. Paul would have us know that, hi, my name is... Fill in the blank. And I'm totally depraved. I'm, I'm wretched beyond belief. I'm a hopeless sinner. That's the first step. First step to not just recovery, but to resurrection. The reason they do that in AA, if you ask them, is so that, so that those people constantly remember and are reminded that they are in need. They're in need. They don't ever want them to forget that they're in need. There's a second reason, though. They, they also um, do this because it puts everybody on the same level playing field. So that when you stand up in that group and you say, Hi, my name is such and such, and this is the truth about me. We're all here. And so you, you look around that circle and you've got bankers, you've got lawyers, you've got rich, you've got poor, you've got college students, you've got retirees. It doesn't matter. It's very simply, here's my name, and I got the same problem that everybody else does. It's sin. It's sin. Passages like this not only remind us of who we are, but it amplifies who God is. You want to get God right? Make sure you get you right. Make sure you understand the reality of our sinfulness. 
the complete depravity of our humanity. We sang a song there at the end, How Deep the Father's Love. Uh, if I kick anytime soon, just put it on the list. Sing that one, Ricky. Fits perfect with our passage. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. What is the hope in your death to your resurrection? It's only in Christ. Why should I gain? What should our attitude be? Why should I gain from His reward? I can't give an answer. There's no good answer to why you and I deserve God's grace and mercy. That's what makes it amazing grace. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we'll take just another moment. And um, I would ask that we sit on these truths. And we enjoy the presence of your spirit with us this morning. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts. That the truth of who we were would be a reality to us, a healthy reality to us. And that it would drive us to passionate worship and to prayer for the lost. That it would unify us as a body. That that activity would happen because of these truths among this body, this place we call Cornerstone, that we would love each other better, that we would love each other well, that we would love each other deeply because none of us deserved your grace more than the next guy. We all, we all are in need of mercy. From beginning to end, rich, poor, young, old, the Jew, the Gentile. But for your grace, our dear God, but, but for your rich mercy, but for your great love with which you loved us, we would be lost. We would be lost. For the one who has never who has never kneeled before your cross and given up their attempts to impress you, Father, I, I pray that this morning they would see you and they would see your gospel in the correct light. Might they cry out to you and receive the grace that is available to them. Father, thank you for loving us, not, not based in our lovableness. If that's a word, Lord, thank you for loving us because you are true love. Your love that is beyond our understanding. And your love is unshakable because it's, it's based in you and you alone. What great news. What great news. Give us rest, Lord, in the truth. Give us rest in the truth. Draw us together in our hearts because of these truths. In Jesus' name.